Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon. Welcome to Endocast. I'm your host, Tony Ray. This is episode four with our physician guest, Neil Sharma, from Parkview Health and Cancer Institute, talking to us about introductal RFA. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians, presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Morning, Dr. Sharma. How are you? Good morning, Tony. How are you? Doing really well. Just for the audience to know out there, we are recording Endocast live from ACG this week, and our special guest is Dr. Sharma from Parkview Health in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Parkview has a very unique, hyper-focused GI cancer practice, and I'll let Dr. Sharma kind of explain exactly what that looks like. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, we have a unique practice there. It's an interesting setup. Parkview Health is a not-for-profit health system. There's about seven hospitals. They feed all the interventional endoscopy as well as GI oncology work into a new cancer institute. We opened our doors in 2018 in the summer. Uh, My other roles are the president of the Cancer Institute and the medical director of the GI oncology program. The setup's really unique. It's a bit similar to Geisinger in the sense of we take care of a very large catchment area, which includes a rural population, um, and all those patients come in to our cancer institute where we work in a multidisciplinary approach alongside the GI medical oncologists, alongside radiation oncologists, and alongside other surgical specialties. Really impressive, Dr. Sharma. I'm certain the community in that area benefits tremendously from your presence. It also sets us up nicely to talk a little bit more about RFA and the bile duct. But before we do that, it will be great for the audience to get to know you just a little bit better on a personal level. Yeah, I was born in Chicago, and when I was five or six, my dad was an engineer. We moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they still live. So obviously that was a big pullback for them to get me back to come home. My sister's a radiation oncologist, actually, so always some oncology interest uh, running through the family there. And after I finished uh, med school at Medical College of Virginia, I went down to University of South Florida and Moffitt Cancer Center and had major exposure to cancer. And saw that the field of interventional endoscopy could have a strong contribution to foregut GI cancers in particular, which usually have very poor outcomes. So cancers like esophageal, gastric, pancreatic, biliary cancers, where we have a real opportunity to help people. And so I had an opportunity to work with my hands, plus work in the oncologic space. And as everyone who does interventional endoscopy knows, it's a bit of a transection between GI, surgery, and cancer. And it's a really great time to be in interventional endoscopy right now. Interesting you mention Moffitt. I actually used to work and live in the Tampa area, so I have spent some time working with Dr. Clapman myself. Yeah, big shout out to Jason and the Moffitt Cancer System has done a great job of developing endoscopic oncology as a whole, which I think is almost a subset field of interventional endoscopy. And that was my first exposure actually to this multidisciplinary approach. And I think the work that Jason's done there and the programs that they built are, are absolutely amazing. So Can you tell us how you see Parkview Cancer Center evolving in the next several years? Absolutely. So, you know what's interesting about the space is, uh, and this actually brought me back to go to Parkview, I never really thought I would leave the traditional pure academic space, but we're a bit of a hybrid. Uh, You know, I had the opportunity to work with Indiana University med students. I get the opportunity to do dedicated research and have a dedicated research team. Um, We're a not-for-profit system. But our goal is to truly work in a way to reduce cost, um, work together across multiple disciplines to improve the outcomes. 
and the best place to do that, honestly, are, are cancers where people don't have the, an ideal outcome. And, and cholangiocarcinoma is a great example of that. So our plan in the future is we have these clinics, and my clinic space is shared with GI medical oncology, GI surgical subspecialties, work closely with radiation oncology, and we can cross-collaborate. So if we can bring in synergies between these fields to get better outcomes, it's great for us. Often as interventional endoscopists, as you know, we talk to one another or we talk to our GI colleagues, but yet we don't understand or have the opportunity to interact with those other spaces. And cancer more and more is getting more complex. It's becoming personalized medicine, and we have to find ways in which these fields can inter intersect one another and work closely. That's well put, Dr. Sharma. I really appreciate you sharing. So let's start talking a little bit more about introductal RFA. Uh, for the physicians that are not familiar with RFA in the bile duct, can you give us just a basic overview? Absolutely. So radiofrequency ablation, which is RFA, is a thermal-based energy, and most people will have some exposure to it in all fields of GI, particularly because of exposure through Barrett's esophagus. So Nick Shaheen, who was uh, a mentor for me when we were at the Interventional Endoscopy Program, who many of you know, did a lot of those publications uh, in the New England Journal and talked about the efficacy of RFA energy to treat Barrett's esophagus. So similar concept, we see RFA energy now expanded to multiple roles in medicine. So that includes an electrophysiology, cardiac ablation. We see it in pulmonary and bronchothermal plasty. We also see it through interventional radiology where they've been doing percutaneous RFA ablation in the liver and they've also done this laparoscopically. So now it makes sense for us to take this energy and apply it to the bile ducts directly. The concept has been around for quite some time. So uh, there was actually a registry in the United States. Uh, Dr. Kahala, Dr. Raj Shah, multiple others were involved with that registry and they published some of their data back in 2014. And additionally, it's been around in Europe for a period of time. And now Boston Scientific has done a great job of um, acquiring some of that technology and putting it together for us. And what was it about the technology that convinced you that it was worth using in your patients, Dr. Sharma? Yeah, so the technology as a background, it gives us an opportunity to apply thermal energy directly to the bile duct in order to cause necrosis of tissues, which are cancerous tissues that line that bile duct and cause obstruction of the bile duct so the liver doesn't drain. We've seen previous studies that have shown the efficacy of RFA, and for those who have not done it, it's a natural continuum of the spectrum of ERCP and spyglass cholangioscopy and the management of hyalur strictures. So speaking of cholangioscopy, Dr. Sharma, can you help us understand a little bit about how you're using visual assessment both prior and post RFA in the bile duct? Absolutely. So when we approach a patient who has a potential malignant stricture from cholangiocarcinoma, so a bit different than a patient who has extrinsic compression for pancreatic cancer, for example, we want to be able to see those tissues, understand the extent of the disease along the longitudinal aspect of that bile duct. And that's really, really an important concept. So what this means is we're able to understand the extent of that growth including potential skip lesions for the cholangiocarcinoma. Prior studies in the radiology literature have actually looked modern contrasted multi-detector CTs and put them up against cholangioscopy uh, or looked at the total amount of sensitivity and specificity for the accurate diagnosis of the longitudinal length of cholangiocarcinoma. And that range is about 78% up to 92% in terms of its sensitivity and specificity. So that means that up to about one out of five times, 
but the CT scan is not going to be able to tell us how much cancer is along that bile duct. And that's really, really important to our surgical oncologist. So every time we get in the cancer space, in order for us to be successful and bring value as interventional endoscopists, we need to understand from the perspective of the surgical oncologist and the medical oncologist and the radiation oncologist what they're looking for and how we can bring that value. So here's a great example of how cholangioscopy and look at that longitudinal extent of tumor. Why that's important is it lets us know, first of all, is the tumor resectable? So if you're getting into the bilateral secondary radicals, so the second time those bile ducts split off the left and right main on both sides of the liver, that patient's not resectable. So it's not just vascular staging, which is best seen on CT, but it's this additional staging. Beyond that, you need to be able to use spyglass in order to understand where it is that you're going to ablate because you switch back over to fluoroscopy after you've looked at the longitudinal extent with spyglass and you want to have some markers in your mind externally so when you're converting over to fluoroscopy you know what your ablation zone is. It's time to determine your stenting and ablation strategy. What do you specifically look at to make that determination? So first and foremost I want to know is it going into the intrahepatic portions of the bile duct or is it just extrahepatic bile duct? Dissymmetry plays a key role in the safety for radiofrequency ablation in the bile duct. The bile duct walls are traditionally rather thin, but fortunately we figured out dosimetry over a period of time and multiple studies, even before Boston Scientific acquired the technology. And if you're going to use RFA in the duct, is that done traditionally prior to stent placement, or do you do that on a more serial basis with stent exchanges? That's a great question. It really depends upon when you're catching that patient. So in our center, we might get someone referred to us who's already been stented from an outside institution. Um, if you're getting the patient de novo, in other words, you're the one doing the diagnosis, you can start in a step-up approach. Um, you can even give RFA in that initial setting and then put in a stent right away. So you have op multiple options there. What you want to tailor it to is, is that patient already have an indwelling metal stent or a plastic stent, one? And then two, going back to what is the oncologic perspective? So are you doing this in a neoadjuvant approach with the hope to get this patient to surgery? Or are they never a surgical candidate because they have much more advanced disease? And that really determines what type of stent we would, we would do as well and how often that we'll do the RFA. Are we going to do a one-time shot because the patient you know, has much advanced disease and may or may not have a great overall prognosis, or are we doing this in a, in a prospective approach? And we have a nice little algorithm that we showed at a roundtable in DDW. Um, myself, uh, Dr. Easler, uh, also from IU, and the main campus down there in Indianapolis, uh, we did a nice little roundtable at DDW, and we put together some algorithms uh, combining some of our joint efforts because we have a very similar practice pattern. Great. Thank you for sharing, Dr. Sharma. We've heard other physicians that use a functional status scale in making clinical decisions. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely, so I think functional status scales are really important. They're important particularly to the medical oncologist. And so there's a couple of different scales. Um, one of the scales is kind of scaled from zero to 100. Another scale, which is the ECOG scale, is scaled from zero to five. Zero being completely normal, best functional status, five being deceased. Uh, ECOG scale is just a little bit more simple, probably a little bit more often used um, in terms of the medical oncology space. Uh, the Karnowski scale is just a little more detailed. It's that, that 0 to 100 scale, both of which are similar in terms of what they're trying to do is assess what the functional status of that patient is, which is allowing us to understand how aggressive we want to be in terms of our therapies. And that's all therapies, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, RFA. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, how you interact with the oncologist on that, too, in just a few minutes. Uh, but before that, I'd like to ask you a little bit about 
the potential to use RFA in the distal bile duct, often with pancreas cancer patients. Uh, when would you initiate something like that? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the person doing the most of this is Dr. Jeffrey Block out of California. Um, he also was part of that roundtable at DDW. He's seeing some values in doing it in that space. Um, you have to obviously be somewhat selective because this is extrinsic compression, so you want to be thoughtful about what is the role for RFA in that patient in terms of their treatment algorithm. So in other words, many of us understand that there's a neoadjuvant approach to pancreatic cancers now, which means that the vast majority of those patients are getting chemotherapy. That chemotherapy is gemcitabine or Braxane, or it can be um, a 5-FU-based therapy like Fulfirinox. And what they're trying to do is get that patient to have a little bit of shrink down of disease and also declare themselves biologically, meaning that they don't advance in terms of metastat metastatic disease. And if they don't, then they try to take them over to surgery with the goal of getting an R0 resection. So again, in the onco oncology world, what that means to surgical oncologists is R0 means that you have negative margins and you're able to remove all of that disease. That's the only thing that has a survival value for those patients for pancreatic cancer. Sure. So getting back to cholangiocarcinoma and hyalur stricture management, are there any situations that give you pause or do you always plan to deliver RFA energy in the uh, hyalur stricture areas? Yeah, Tony, that's a great question. So I would reference Dr. Siddiqui's talk that she did with you on her podcast in terms of hyalur stricture management, and I won't try to replicate any of the amazing things that she talked about. I think in the space of RFA, where there's a reason to maybe have a pause is an understanding of the vascular involvement. So everything we do, as you mentioned before, is in a multidisciplinary approach. So I don't really go down that RFA pathway unless I have an understanding of the anatomy of the patient. In other words, the, big, the only risk of bleeding that I really worry about would be involvement of hepatic artery branch or portal vein branch. We review all of our cases in a multidisciplinary tumor board, so radiologists are there, so they would talk about that. If the patient has a metal stent, Dr. Sharma, what surveillance do you use to detect overgrowth, and what is your ablation strategy in that situation? There have been a number of studies that have looked at RFA, and then they've used different types of stents, so it's probably important to mention some of those. Uh, there was a study out of GIE with Dr. Yang in 2018, where they used plastic stents only. They took about 65 patients. There's a study from Dr. Gao in GIE also, which also used a preference of plastic stents. And Dr. Soraya's study, which is that 2014 registry that we had in the United States, they used metal stents only. So there's a lot of opportunity for different stent, stents to be chosen. And if we're going to talk about that, which we can later on, I think that also goes along with understanding of what the clinical picture for the patient is. In terms of a metal stent being obstructed, we like to just use clinical algorithm of watching the patient's LFTs and watching out for signs of cholangitis or jaundice. Most of that's actually done in our multidisciplinary GI oncology clinic by the medical oncologist because they're following these patients giving chemotherapy. So they're routinely checking their LFTs. So I would encourage everyone who wants to build an RFA portion to their practice and be involved with cholangiocarcinoma to have that conversation with them because you'll be surprised how often they treat through elevated LFTs uh, not recognizing that there could be some potential stent obstruction versus if you're in that space, because now I'm actually in a clinic space with them, that conversation arises quite a bit and you can see trends in their LFTs that they might not refer back to you for. So speaking of working with your other specialties in the hospital, can you give us a little bit of insight into what the tumor board looks like and how you're interacting with other medical specialties and what they need to understand about RFA introductively? Yeah, absolutely. So at the Parkview Cancer Institute, we have multiple tumor boards. 
those tumor boards are about nine or ten different tumor boards for all the different subspecialties uh, that we encounter in terms of different cases that we review. We review actually every case because every patient is super important to us. So that means that we have separated our GI oncology tumor boards to upper and lower GI because we have just so much volume. And so we want to make sure that we have the opportunity and time to discuss these cases in detail, especially as the complexity is rising, as you mentioned before. So every case on Thursday mornings in terms of foregut GI cancer cases that are new get reviewed there by a multidisciplinary tumor board that involves pathologists, radiologists, surgical oncology, medical oncology, radiation oncology, interventional endoscopy, we present those cases, um, interventional radiology, geneticists, nurse navigators. There's a lot of social support that happens there. Our research nurses... And we go through these cases in detail. We look for opportunities to involve them in clinical trials. We discuss the subtleties of what each of the different specialties can offer. And I think for interventional endoscopy, because our space is changing so rapidly and because we're coming up with newer and newer modalities to offer treatment, it's really important for all of us to try to take time out of our extremely busy schedules. It pays dividends down the road. I, I can only say that. So every time we've tried to introduce new technology from RFA in the bile duct to things like ESD to things that we're talking about, even here at ACG, we're doing a plenary session about nanoparticle injection into pancreatic cancers with Dr. Simon Lowe, Dr. Mohamed Othman, Dr. Mendoza Lan. I think it's really important that we take these technologies and we talk about them in a multidisciplinary space so the oncologists know what we can do. And RFA is no different. It's a, it's a really great opportunity for us. We're actually looking at combining it with some other novel chemotherapies or immunotherapies. But the only way we could have that opportunity is if we were in that space. Well put, Dr. Sharma. I'm sure the other specialties in the hospital really appreciate you sharing. Plus, it's an opportunity for each of you to share more about new technology and techniques used to manage this disease. First off, I would just like to say thank you again for coming on Endocast. This has been really fun, and it's great to have you here. If you're going to leave us with just one final point about cholangiocarcinoma and integrating RFA into the duct, what would that be? And I think if anyone is interested in introducing RFA, if you're already an experienced interventional endoscopist, there's a really great opportunity for you here in terms of the continuum from cholangioscopy to hyalur stricture management to now introducing a true treatment modality. Great. Thanks again, Dr. Sharma. Enjoy the rest of ACG. Thank you. I appreciate you, Tony. And that's Endocast. Please follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit us at endosuite.com. That's endosuite.com, which features over 70 physician-led educational videos, including lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every patient or every case. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote nor encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases, as individual results may vary. The law restricts devices to sale by or on the order of a physician. Indications, contraindications, 
Warnings and instructions for use can be found on the product labeling supplied with each device. Products shown for information purposes only may not be approved for sale in certain countries. This material is not intended for use in France by prescription only.